She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. In search of... The Magic of Stonehenge. Narration for this episode is written by Deborah Bloom. It is produced by Alan Landsberg and J. Francis Hitching. Edited by Michael Ornstein with assistance by John Schwartz and Jack Dunsmore. Series is hosted and narrated by Leonard Nimoy. This episode originally aired Saturday, September 10th, 1977. This is the last episode of season one. But with the universe, as with life, endings seem to merge with beginnings. Mm -hmm. 16 years later on this date, the X-Files would debut. Yay, X-Files Day. And then 19 years later, we would come back from a three and a half month hiatus and put out an episode on Amelia Earhart. So, yep, it all goes in a circle. It's all a circle, people. It's all a circle. So the narration opens and Nimoy says, Thousands of years ago, a great work was begun on a barren landscape. The people behind the project erected a ring of colossal stones according to precise calculations. When the job was finished, a complex machine stood in the middle of no place. Then they disappeared. But the monument is almost intact. It is called Stonehenge. The glow of ancient knowledge has faded, but a strange power still seems to linger over the stones. It beckons some men to worship and others to search for the magic of Stonehenge. <gasps> dun, 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 dun. Opening credits. And then he continues. The architects are unknown. The purpose has been forgotten. But for many, the magic of Stonehenge is still fresh. In search of the magic of Stonehenge. They're in conjecture, blah, blah, blah. This narration is not that great. I don't know if Deborah Bloom got pushed back from her Massacre of Easter Island narration that was super over the top and she overcorrected or what, but like people behind the project and when the job was finished, the complex machine stood in the middle of no place. Like I mm-hmm. even typed nowhere and had to correct it because I know the place. It's kind of bland. I mean, this is Stonehenge. It'd be like rock and roll. Uh, come on. <laughs> Boom. I don't I don't know because like I just I don't find Stonehenge that compelling, I have to say. It's one of those like mysteries that I've just never been that fascinated by. Oh no, man. Rock and roll. And in <laughs> honor of that, this episode is gonna flow like UFO. So if you like UFO, you're in for a treat. And if you didn't, well, too bad. The Stonehenge is a circle of stones <laughs> on the Southbury Plain in southern England. And for centuries, men have looked at it and questioned. The mystery is twofold, we're told. Who built it and why? Only recently has evidence come to light that Stonehenge is a complex machine with a purpose so simple it was overlooked for centuries. And simple is going to come up later in the after episode discussion. And I will Mm -hmm. probably get ranty, but that's for later. (laughs) So there are no... (laughs) there are no written clues to explain stonehenge was it a city of the dead if it was it was super small i know it's not a city there's no way it's a couple rocks come on 
Was it a pagan temple of sacrifice? I mean, what isn't? Let's be honest. What is not a pagan temple of sacrifice? Theories like these were based as much on speculation as evidence. One might say theory and conjecture. (laughs) The breakthrough came in the 1960s when an astronomer got involved. Gerald Hawkins, author of Beyond Stonehenge, tells us it was based on pure numbers and pure directions. The idea of doorways on an open plane made no sense to him. He believed he was supposed to be seeing something through those archways. And then he kind of discusses like current, and by current we mean like mid-1970 archaeological understanding of Stonehenge and the different builds and the time periods of those builds. Nothing that's really currently disputed. The dates may be more precise. I honestly didn't check because it seemed pretty, you know, he, it was built in stages and different levels and that kind of stuff. So we are told in 2500 BC, much of the world's population lived in caves, which I'm pretty sure even 1970 was demonstrably incorrect. And the rest of this narration will totally contradict that sentence. But anyway, man was still struggling to create crude tools. And in Egypt, slaves were still at work on the Great Pyramids, two phrases which, again, directly contradict each other, but okay. The walls Mm -hmm. of Jericho were yet unbreached because we need to get some Bible in there. I'm surprised we didn't say like 2,500 years before the birth of Christ, but we didn't. Anyway, the Sumerians were just starting that whole writing thing that would catch on later, and it would be centuries before, and this is a quote, the Jews would hide the Dead Sea Scrolls in a cave in Qumran. Probably because people were living in those caves and they couldn't hide anything in there because like, oh, that's not a good hiding place. People live in there. Don't know. The Minoan Empire ruled the Mediterranean from Crete. They would soon head to New Hampshire, as we learned, but not yet, <laughs> because no explorers had yet found the shores of North America and glimpses of its wonders, except for the people who already live in there. But again, okay. So yeah, in search of never like they'll acknowledge indigenous people in America, but they always act like I don't know somehow that doesn't count, which is probably the yeah. most racist thing they yeah. do. European eyes hadn't seen it yet; doesn't count. <laughs> Too bad. Yep. So at this time, again, twenty five hundred BC, an army of men were assembling on the Salisbury Plain to build Stonehenge. But why? We yeah. Don't know why? 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 We get some more archaeology that is possibly dubious. The stone is so hard that it takes half an hour to cut with a diamond tip saw. But they, meaning the people 2500 BC, were able to drill into it with nothing but primitive tools like some flint chips and pieces of wood. Mm. We are asked why they would have chosen stone that can only be found in one place in the world to Priscilla Mountains in Wales, about 200 miles away. Ooh, it's a long way. It is a long way. And this has pretty much been determined incorrect recently. The stones are believed to have actually been quarried near Marlborough in Wiltshire, England, which is about 40 miles away from Stonehenge. Though there is still an idea that some of the stones may have come from a site called, I apologize for all of this, Wan Muan, which is Welsh for Peatmoor, which was a dismantled Neolithic stone circle in the Priscilla Hills of Pembrokeshire, Wales. Essentially, the general location mentioned the episode where the quarry was. This site was built around 3400 to 3200 BC and was disassembled prior to 2150 BC. There are literally competing geological papers that have been written in 2021 and 2022 that are based like the scientific equivalent of like, uh uh, uh huh, 
uh-huh, uh-huh, just going back and forth, arguing about uh-huh. where the stones came from. So, yeah. yeah, pretty cool. Francis Hitching. We've heard that name before. Where did we hear that name before? He's the guy who wrote the episode about Loch Ness Monster. Oh, he wonders, okay. Yeah. He wonders why they put up various types of stones and what power they must have believed they contained. He believes that for ancient Britons, the countryside was alive with supernatural spirits. And then we get a bunch of ancient legends and see some cows just chilling by some rocks. We hear about the devil and a hunchback gnome who lived under a rock and a witch. And then we also hear some positive powers, like a stone that could cure children of the pox, which I guess that would probably be convenient. So according to the theory of where they're coming from in this episode, they had to travel some 240 miles. But ancient people had no powered equipment to travel over land and sea. How did they do it? How? Well, in 1954, the BBC recruited 40 schoolboys to give it a go. Nice, nice. Yeah. So they like, hey, let's just do it. So they used a stone that was one fiftieth the weight, and we aren't really told how it went. Doesn't look great though from the footage we see. So uh-huh. the ancients must have been aided by Merlin the magician. Is what I mean, doing. obviously that's that's yeah yeah. I mean, clearly he made Merlin the stones so light they just floated on water, which is actually more about density than weight. But fair, okay, whatever. However, there were still casualties, and then we see the schoolboys again, and that doesn't seem to go good if you're talking about their casualties and then you show us pictures of the schoolboys pushing rocks again if we exclude magic even though this episode is literally called the magic of stonehenge then they assume like the entire population of the area must have been working on the project again gerald hawkins boy astronomer says that he calculates 1.5 million man days of work and many broken legs were put into the effort i guess man days is like a day that a man works i guess yeah like man hours i guess it's another way to say that like yeah it's a weird weird way to calculate it but sure so if you technically if you had 1.5 million men it would only take one day to do it because that would be 1.5 million man days so exactly yeah yeah he has uncovered hard numerical facts of an interest in precision and time patterns he says the work was quote a complete entity to them meaning the people so it must have been very satisfying work and was done because they wanted to do it. Sure. This may have been Why the not? foundation of civilization itself, a common community with a common purpose and a set of shared ideas. So we talk about civilization starting like in Mesopotamia, possibly. Nah, dude, Stonehenge. Boom. <laughs> then Leonard Nimoy tells us the designers of Stonehenge, which he calls Stonehengers and is kind of funny. And I'm going to use it later, but. We keep saying Stonehengers could not have inspired an army of workers unless the people were held in the spell of a great, perhaps even magical idea. Oh, magic. So much magic. So much magic. And then it's commercial. And then we come back and it's nighttime at Stonehenge. Woohoo! Nighttime at Stonehenge sounds like either a really amazing party or a really terrible horror movie. Well, you know who's at this party or horror movie? Druids. Nice. They are a religious sect that claims spiritual descent from the architects of Stonehenge. Although oh. there is little evidence to support their claim. So in search of gives them a burn right there. Boom. <laughs> yep. 
And then they don't use this exact words, but the word they do use kind of match this. Their little cosplay reenactments on the site are of little help in understanding its purpose as the druids are latecomers. So they actually yeah. do use the word latecomers. They don't say little cosplay, but they do say reenactments. So mm -hmm. the creators of Stonehenge, and then now we're getting Francis Hitchin talking. So he says that it came about prior to written language, and yet they had a mathematical geometrical and astronomical knowledge that seems quote quite beyond the conception of primitive and barbarian people mm. Mm. yep mm. there are over 300 other circles scattered around britain some still intact hitching finds this quite remarkable because they were primitives and all that kind of business right <laughs> you know not gonna happen yeah this idea that people in the past could not like conceive of or like i don't know come up with things it just always drives me crazy yeah cannot maybe keep records of something just because they couldn't write language we're not able to like keep track of things like the rising of the sun and all that kind of stuff yeah right he mentions alexander tom who lived from 1894 to 1985 who was a scottish engineer and is the person who almost single-handedly categorized britain's stone circles and monuments he was possibly the first to suggest an astronomical purpose for many of the sites. So it wasn't Mr. Hawkins. It was actually this dude. Hitchings then goes into ley lines, which are mm -hmm. lines of cosmic energy that crisscross Britain and other places, with the stone circles possibly being focal points of the energy. Ooh. Oh. Ooh. We're told that fortresses were built upon mountains to absorb their power and that monks built churches over pagan sites. I guess to absorb pagan energy, which would be weird for churches, but more likely just to like crush pagan rituals and make them still come to the same place because that's how churches work. Hitching says that some sites have anomalies in the Earth's magnetic field around them that may be the secret to the power of these megaliths. And then we have to remember that Hitching, when we met him last time, we talked about him. He is an author, dowser, journalist, and filmmaker. So mm -hmm. he's all about energy. If Hitchings is right, magic may have actually been electromagnetic energy. Mm -hmm. He says that maybe ancient people could tap this power for healing and, and this is literally what he says, and like some animals today, for telepathy and navigation. <laughs> I was not aware that animals were using telepathy nowadays, but apparently Oh yeah, are. my cats do it all the time. <laughs> yeah. And so I kind of came up with the idea that megalithic sites are kind of like the tin cans and ley lines are the string. Because Yeah, you know, okay. That's a good metaphor. Yeah, It's kind of like ESP going through plants a little bit too. Like, you know, like mm -hmm. the big networks. So, yeah. And then we get a quote. Some have theorized that magnetic energy may be the basis for extrasensory perception. If this is true... Perhaps the Stonehengers used their psychic energy on a level never achieved since. Except by the people of Tiwanaku who destroyed themselves with psychic warfare, of course. We knew about yeah, that. Obviously. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, learned about that from Karen. Yeah. Stonehenge was the center of this psychic network, by the way, in case you were wondering. Gerald Hawking says that as a quantitative scientist, he saw a fundamental pattern that intrigued him and reached his brain and mind. So he's apparently a dualist, bleeds in mind-brain separation. He was able to go back in time to 2000 BC with math. 
and watch the sunrise and moonrise and planets and stars. And he was able to use computers to quickly show that the pattern of Stonehenge matched the pattern of the sky. He says, in this way, what was a temple also served a purpose as a way to reach out to the stars. I'm not sure I'm totally on board with Hawkins, but he gets credit for that also. Come up later. <laughs> the heel stone that aligns to sunrise in midsummer is the most dramatic of these earth and sky alignments. It is believed the Druids use these alignments for ritual incantations and sacrifices. But were they the designers of Stonehenge? I mean, you already emphatically told us that they weren't when you talked about them earlier. So I'm guessing they're right. Not. They yeah. cannot be because they yeah. came so much later, as we learned. Yeah. But Hitchin says the Druids are the best answer to the question of who built Stonehenge. Oh, because how? they they predated Caesar. And I mean, you know, if you predate Caesar, what's an extra couple thousand years? No, we care. Right. <laughs> anyway. But then he says that people who say that are actually wrong. OK, because the Druids hung out in oak groves. And we're a bloodthirsty race. That's not what I've heard about the Druids, but okay. Yeah. Caesar said they hung people up in baskets and burned them alive. But they Ooh. were expert astronomers. So they got that going for them. You know, <laughs> you're a bloodthirsty race to burn people in baskets, but you're good at astronomy. All right. Yeah. Way to so, find the positives. <laughs> yeah. So if not the Druids, who did design Stonehenge? Because we are then told that experts like Hitchens don't believe the Druids designed Stonehenge, which is good to know because you wouldn't actually have gleaned that information <laughs> from listening to Hitchens himself. So, I mean, I guess it's in there. <laughs> what he's talking, I almost was like, he's saying what can be, I mean, this is kind of before that, but like he's trying to give a sound bite that can be used for either camp. So he can like go whichever way he wants to almost. Kind of like if oh. you say like, the killer has brown hair. The killer has blonde hair. And then when he, they find him, you, you're good. Unless he's a redhead, then you're screwed. But Right. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. But statistically, you're probably bald. good. But yeah. I guess you or could say bald, like, well, yeah. he was bald, but he did have brown hair a long time ago. So unless he never had hair because he was, you know, born with that condition where you don't have any hair. But <laughs> alopecia. Yeah. I can't remember what it was called. So Well, I think there's, I think, well, I think there's a more, I think alopecia is that you lose your hair. There's one oh. where you're genetically born, like the guy that we had in Revelations, whose name I can't remember. But he always plays like the mutant characters, and he was oh, born without yeah, hair yeah. or fingernails. So, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Stonehengers seem to have been far more than hunter gatherers or cave dwellers, though. They seem to have quickly gained a superior, highly sophisticated intelligence. Otherwise, how could they have created an entire psychic grid that crisscrosses Britain and is focused at Stonehenge? I mean, that question has problems because you're assuming that there is an entire psychic grid that crisscrosses Britain and focuses at Stonehenge. But anyway, mm -hmm. so one must wonder where they gain such a sudden spurt of knowledge, a spurt 5,000 years ahead of its time. We may never know. I think they're trying to give you hints of that we do know, but they're not really wanting to oh. say Oh, Okay, see, I thought yeah. that they were leading into the ancient aliens thing. Well, that's what I, I think they are. They that's what I think they are doing, and they're oh, just not okay. actually saying it. That's what it. I yeah. thought is that they were yeah. just trying to really heavily imply that aliens must have been involved. And in yeah, way. I think they're just not wanting to say it because they keep okay. they keep going there. Yeah, how could it happen? I don't know. I don't it seems know. like how they must they have, have learned it from stuff? somewhere. Where <laughs> yeah. did they learn it from? Who knows? 
The math is also spurious because if it's a spurt of knowledge 5,000 years ahead of time and Stonehenge was supposedly built in 2500 BC, that would make this 2500 AD. Um, we're a little behind that, but yeah. okay. Hawkins wonders if they weren't actually worshiping a new type of god. And apparently as he's talking, if we're to believe him, he actually comes up with an idea on the fly, like during the interview. And he says, mm -hmm. maybe it was a god of time. The repetitive huh. security of time gave them comfort, and perhaps Stonehenge was built to worship this god of time. So, huh. okay. Yeah. So, apparently, as he was talking, and he's doing that thing where like his eyes start fluttering, and, like he's really trying to think. And so, it, it kind of seems real. Like he's like just giving a chat, and then suddenly, like, oh, you know what? It might be this. So, <laughs> haven't read his books. So I can't tell you. Yeah. Then we're asked, what were the Stonehengers looking forward to? The observations of time and the predictions of eclipses, or perhaps... Some more magical communication from the outer cosmos where time has no limits. Oh. oh. Who would be communicating from the outer cosmos? Huh. I do not know. Me neither. And then we get the closing narration. Stonehenge is not alone in the riddle of ancient design. In the thick jungles of the Yucatan Peninsula, an ancient observatory called the Caracol charted the phases of Venus as accurately as 20th century telescopes. Very deep within the same jungle, a Mayan pyramid was aligned to the midsummer sun. 6,000 miles away, Egyptian pyramids mapped the rising and setting sun on the same day. And in the distant past of India... Holy men gathered to watch the sky. For what were they waiting? Mm -hmm. Aliens, maybe? And then, maybe. And then we're in studio with Leonard Nimoy, and he says, We have some understanding now of the possible explanation for Stonehenge and the other monuments around the world that have puzzled investigators for so long. The question which still eludes us is who erected these working monuments. Clearly, they were the work of people more advanced than we had thought possible for that time. We can speculate that our ancestors were possessed of knowledge that was somehow lost to succeeding generations. Or perhaps they had help. Dun, 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 dun. Who could help them? Um... Aliens? Aliens. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Perhaps of the ancient variety. <laughs> oh, I mean, it, it would have to be because we're talking right. like 2500 BC, yeah. right? Let's say we're time traveling aliens. <laughs> okay. That's possible. I mean, it could be, just be time traveling humans if you want to go. Yeah. Back I mean, that's also possible. Yeah. It's just as possible. Yeah. <laughs> So because Stonehenge was built on what had been a burial site that was built 500 years before Stonehenge was built, some people now think that it was just a monument of remembrance. There's an article in the New York Times that I linked in the show notes. I think Nick is going to take issue with this. But basically, <laughs> uh, this professor at University College of London, his name is Mike Parker Pearson. 
he has made some Stonehenge-related discoveries, including the Duraton Walls settlement, which is a settlement that was nearby and probably is where the people who were building Stonehenge like stayed or lived. Mm-hmm. He says that Stonehenge was built at a time of drastic population decline and dispersal. So he thinks that there were few, if any, villages, and society was trying to create a sense of unity and collaboration among his members. So because Stonehenge was built on an ancient cemetery, he thinks it was a monument of remembrance and an expression of unity that pulled people together in pursuit of a common endeavor. And then he says, people don't want it to be that simple as an explanation. Yeah. So Pearson's name did come up in the the battle of papers that is going on. Yes. I think he is actually on the stones came from Wales group, but I okay. do not know for sure because there's a bunch of people with the names that start with P involved in this. And he's got double P because he's a Parker Pearson. So mm-hmm. um, I don't remember, but yeah. So, and what he's saying, I had no problem with what he's saying. Like it's probably true, but the whole like, but people don't want it to be that simple. It's not that it's simple. It's that that is in again, I'm going to use the word that I used last episode. It's kind of boring. And it's not <laughs> that it's boring. It's just this thing that I mm, I have this pet peeve that really irritates me about scientists. And it mm-hmm. comes up and it came up a lot in the late 90s with Jack Horner. Oh, yes. Alan Grant is based on. And Mm -hmm. big arguments about the T-Rex. And actually, Jack Horner was stationed out of the museum at Bozeman, Montana, where I was actually going to school for film at the time. Oh, cool. So, Well, not at the time Jurassic Park came out, but a little bit later. Right. I didn't go there for that. I went there for something else, Uh, basically because I read Zen and the Art of Mortal Skull Maintenance as a kid and really wanted to go to Bozeman, Montana. That's a whole other story. Anyway, so. (laughs) I wanted to go to Bozeman, Montana because of dinosaurs. So Okay, yeah, yeah, because they had the museum there, yeah. Also saw Carrot Top in concert in Bozeman, Montana. He came. Oh, nice! He came to the campus and did a show. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty good, honestly. Uh, So the big debate with that was whether T Rexes were hunters or scavengers, and they were just going. I honestly, at this point, don't even remember which one. I just lost kind of respect for Jack Horner, which is kind of not. I mean, he's done a lot of stuff, but like being involved in that argument. Because both sides, it was like, no, he's a scavenger. No, he's a hunter. And like, you can be both. We mm-hmm. see that in wildlife today. Like, get over, like, you know, I need it to be my idea or nothing. Like, the whole, like, monument of remembrance, that's fine. But it also happens to be an astronomical calendar. Right. And maybe a location that holds cosmic power. Who knows? But, like, it could be more than one thing. But it's always like, oh, no, it's not that anymore. It's got to be this. And it just bugs the crap out of me it's like yeah you know so like and i don't want to discount anyone's expertise because obviously like he's done been doing work there this pearson guy and so or anyone's work that they're actually like doing the work but it just seems to me like sometimes you get caught up in your own theories that you feel the need to exclude other theories even if they don't mm-hmm. really like affect yours or like discount it like they could work in harmony with it but it's still like well that's someone else's idea i don't want to include it and right. then specifically about this new york times article it's talking about science, but it's in their art and design section. So probably not assigning the best writer for the situation. And this writer lumps astronomical calendar 
in with Gaia's vulva and ancient aliens. Like he just lumps all yeah. them together. And I was like, I yeah, I think there was someone yeah. who mentioned it looks like a vulva, and I was like, okay. Yeah, I'd... they start they started the article with that with like in whatever yeah. it was, someone wrote about how it looks like a vulva, and that's like Gaia's and, and basically that, for the planet or something. Yeah, like, exactly. That the planet was birthed <laughs> through it or something, which I was gonna make a note about and I forgot. No, and it's like, and, it like and that's fine if you want to talk about like the weird, you know, like people have said this and people have said, but like he also lumps like, or oh, it was an astronomical calendar, like in the same group, and you're like, okay, but it is like it's that's a different thing, like you can't just treat all things equal. So that yeah, cool. New York Times has a history of doing that of like just assigning people who shouldn't be writing things to things, especially more recently. This article is actually from earlier this year, I believe, I think, or was it last year? I forget what the date was now. So, but yeah. Anyway, that's my little ranty bit about things being simple and then things having an also because they, mm -hmm. they can't have an also. Yeah, and, no, and, I agree. And honestly, we're never going to know what, you know, because we don't have writing. We can make. I mean, guesses. you're never gonna know. I'm building a time machine right now, so I can go back okay. and find out. Okay, and show them how to build. <laughs> so. Well, I guess I better learn how to build with stones. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, the knowing how to do it back. isn't the hard part. It's the weight <laughs> is the hard part. So you just need to get some anti grav stuff, and you'll be fine. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Gotcha. Because yeah, as long as you put little, I, <laughs> I'm crude. I like to call them little nipples, but I don't know what the actual name is, but they have the little the little bits on the top of each stone. And then the ones that go on the top have little little divots carved into them. And so they so they rest there so they're not gonna fall mm. off. Yeah, there's yeah. actually one there's actually one standing stone that doesn't have the top anymore, and you actually see the little the little nipple on top. A little so, groove, yeah. Yeah. So Gerald Hawkins, boy astronomer, I'd like to call him just as a callback to the night stalker. He was chairman of Boston University's Department of Astronomy from 1957 to 1969 and was a researcher at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He was born in England, which explains the accent, but he moved to the U.S. in 1954. And then in addition to Stonehenge, he also turned his astronomy and computer knowledge to the Nazca lines in Peru and crop circles in Britain. So... In addition to Stonehenge Decoded, which he wrote in 1965, he also wrote Splendor in the Sky in 1961, Meteors, Comments, and Meteorites in 1964, The Life of a Star in 1965, Beyond Stonehenge in 1973, which is the one that is referenced in this episode, but his Stonehenge Decoded was actually written before that, Mind Step to the Cosmos in 1983, and Stonehenge, Earth and Sky in 2004, which was published posthumously because he died in May of 2003 from a heart attack. So, Aww. but he died doing something he enjoyed. He was enjoying that he was flying uh, remote control planes. That was one of his new hobbies that he was doing, and he died in while he was doing that. So, okay. Yeah. So I guess if you're gonna go, go while you're doing something you love. So, I guess so. Yeah, I mean it's nice not to have that suddenness. But it's also nice to not have a lingering death, I think. So if you can find that nice point of where, like, you can take care of some business and then just have it happen, that's cool. There was a recent person who died who's famous, and I can't remember who it was. I want to say they were possibly a musician. 
but I was very impressed because in the obituary, they mentioned they died with um, assisted suicide. So they were, they were very old, but they did that to, you know, and I was very impressed that they actually mentioned that in the news. And now I wish I could remember who it was, Mm -hmm. Um, but I forget. So, yeah, I don't know who that is. Yeah. But I was impressed when I heard it. They actually mentioned it in the news story. They're passing. That, you know, yeah, that like, is you know, interesting. Usually, say like say you know, that. at their home, surrounded by family, or peaceful, and then you know, in their sleep or whatever. And then someone was like, you know, at the age of whatever, with the aid of assisted suicide. And I was like, cool. Everyone should have that option, I believe. So, mm-hmm. yep, that's it. Stonehenge. There's a bunch of links in the show notes you can look at. There um, are a lot. <laughs> Yeah, well, a lot of them are Wikipedia articles, right? There's Stonehenge, Gerald Hawkins, Francis Hitching, Alexander Tom, Leylines, Druids. Um, there's the article that Tori referenced from the New York Times. There's actually an article from How Stuff Works that I linked to. And then the man who bought Stonehenge. Oh, okay. I didn't there know was... that anybody owned it, but I guess that's naive of me to yep. not think I of I believe that. this article is from 2010. Let me pull it up real fast. Yep. 2010 so it's commenting on the night so 95 years ago this week a man walked into a property auction in salisbury and came out 6,600 pounds poorer than the owner of stonehenge sir cecil chubb bought it so that would be the equivalent of like 300 and something thousand pounds nowadays but he bought it because he thought that it should belong to the people huh and he, he owned it for a few years and then gifted it to the monarchy with the agreement that people would never have to pay more than the equivalent of like five pence to visit Stonehenge and that local people could go free. And of course that's not true because now people pay like five pounds or something to go visit Stonehenge. So I didn't didn't know you had to pay to visit Stonehenge. Man, I am naive as fuck. I'm just (laughs) sitting here going, no one owns it. And why would you have to pay? Yeah. it's, It's run by national heritage which is okay. one of the things in the UK. But yeah, I guess you have kind of like I, a national park. I guess we pay to go to national parks all the time. So I guess you have to pay for the upkeep and stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know how sense. they do that because if you look at it and you, you can actually see this in, in the episode as well, if you're watching the In Search of episode or if I don't, honestly, if you've seen any footage of Stonehenge, you've probably seen there is like a highway that runs. I mean, it's like a two lane highway. I think it's the yeah. 303. It runs right next to it. And it's been an issue recently because um, of pollution and just okay. stones yeah. because like, you know, carbon monoxide, yeah, carbon no, monoxide I can see that. all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, but there's like, yeah, there's our, you can see it in the 1970s that it's the same road. There's like, you see cars going right in the background. You can see cars going by as they're talking about Stonehenge. So, well, I guess if you want to like, you can see it from there, but if you really want to get up close and personal. Yeah. Yep. So. Yep, someone bought it and then gave it to the, I guess at the time it was probably King. I don't remember when Queen Victoria died. I don't remember. So I do not have a strong grasp on the history of the British monarchy. Yeah. Oh, I guess it wouldn't have been Queen Victoria because that would have been 95 years. That would have been like 1915 in 2010. So, yeah, I don't think she lived that long. So. I know Queen Elizabeth's not that old or wasn't that old. So, mm-hmm. yep. That's Stonehenge. Rock and roll. 
Boom. Yay. <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those things that I used to see on like mystery segments or the history channel. And I've just never been that intrigued by it. I don't know why. It doesn't scratch that itch for me. I'm pretty sure Stonehenge is where Rasputin tried to call forth a demon and then Hellboy appeared elsewhere. So Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that Rasputin was involved in Hellboy. Yeah. He was. <laughs> Never read Hellboy, so I don't know. Yep. I thought you were gonna tell me something really cool about the real Rasputin, and I was gonna be like, holy shit, he tried to summon a demon at Stonehenge. That's amazing. I mean, you never know. So <laughs> I mean, I probably not. Probably it. not, but <laughs> probably not, but if you told me that, I would believe it. So <laughs> especially because this would have been in the 1940s when he was working with the Nazis. So uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> All right. Not. Anyway. <laughs> Let's let's end this nonsense. Thank you for listening to season one of In Search Of. Yeah. There there are more seasons, so never fear. <laughs> there are. We say goodbye to the first season of In Search Of and Leonard Nimoy. And look forward to the second season. We hope that you enjoy these enough that when the time comes, those of you who were Patreon supporters will want to rejoin Patreon. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we refunded the one month that we stopped and then I asked everyone to please cancel their membership. So I didn't have to keep doing it every month and everyone did. So thank you. And then maybe some new people are listening and might want to get that. So links yeah. are always in the show notes and go to Linktree. has the links for all that stuff. Obviously don't sign up for Patreon now because right now everything is out in the feed. Like well, said, except for Colcheck and Scooby-Doo. So if you're really desperate. Except for Colcheck and Scooby-Doo. Yeah. So there is If you're stuff really you desperate to hear to. more stuff from us in the meantime and you want to subscribe for a month or two just to listen to that, you definitely can. Well, it's and our there. UFO quadrilogy, right? Oh, and the movies. Yeah. We talk yeah. about Paul. We talk about, um, oh, I'm blinking. On did we do four or five? We did, we did the UFO incident. We did Close, Close Encounters, Encounters of Third Kind. We did Communion. We did Fire in the Sky and we did Paul. We did five. Yeah. So there's five movies in there too that we talk about. So there's a lot of, there is still bonus content there. And if you do want to pay for it, you absolutely can. And then we'll obviously be putting more on. You can subscribe for a little bit, get that stuff, unsubscribe and resubscribe when we start putting new stuff on. Or, you know, you could wait till we put new stuff on and then listen to all the back catalog too. Yep. The movies actually are in the Anchor subscription, but the other stuff is not because I just have not got around to loading that yet. That is a plan, but I just haven't done it. So mm-hmm. I want them to be equal. That Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. But yeah, enough of that. Pfft, you guys don't give a shit. Let's get out of here. <laughs> All right. Bye. I, I want-, want to rewatch. <laughs> I'm doing it, Tori. Once I find Sorry, the credits, I scrolled up too far. <laughs> I want to rewatch was hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat. Those are my kitties, Frank and Sam. And Orange Tuxedo, those are Tori's kitties, Billy and Locke. Studios. We both have studios. We do. In the closet. I think Tori's is their living room. It works. Whatever. So. Yep. It's the living room for now. <laughs> I do have a big walk-in closet that I may try. I don't know. It's full of stuff. So at the, this point, that's not happening. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy End Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz, and the truth is what we make of it by the Agrarians. This is where you can find our X-Files episodes and most of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes for now, which cover television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. That's why we call them X-Files adjacent episodes because they're X-Files adjacent. If you like them, you can tell a friend and get them hooked 
and then they'll sign up for Patreon, and then Tori and I <laughs> won't be so damn poor. So, boom. Thank you. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time. And together we'll try to figure out if, if the, the truth, truth is, is still out there. It's all magic. The truth is what we make of it. for you i am sorry but that's okay i'm trying to match you but that's fine yeah all right we're done all right bye